This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to the Mad Splainers, a podcast from the Capital Times that makes sense of local issues. I'm reporter and podcast producer Natalie Yar. As you might remember, last week, my co-host Abby Becker and I told you we were saying goodbye for now, that the Mad Splainers would be taking a break. But here we are, back again, ready to break down your local issues. Well, sort of. We won't be popping up in your podcast feed every week like we used to. We might not even be visiting your ears every month. But when we get the opportunity to bring you an interesting interview, we'll be here. And we got one such opportunity this week when epidemiologist Malia Jones asked if we wanted to talk about the possibility that Madison's public schools could begin offering classes in person starting in January. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you've probably heard Malia talk about the pandemic before, and we knew she'd be the right person to help us think through what a school reopening could mean. In addition to being an epidemiologist, she's a mom of two school-aged kids, and like so many of you, She's been going through that special hell that is virtual school. So this week on the podcast, I'm passing the mic to Cap Times education reporter Scott Gerard. Hi, Madsplainers listeners. Thanks for tuning back in. With so much uncertainty surrounding schools, and as parents and staff alike wait for a decision from the Madison Metropolitan School District on reopening for the third quarter, which is expected by January 8th, we were really excited to hear Malia was interested in talking with us. Hi, Malia. Hi. Nice to talk to you again. Thank you for being back. We are so excited to have you. Yeah, happy to be here. I'll start with the same question, actually, one of the same questions we asked you last time when we talked over the summer. How are you doing as a parent through all of this uncertainty with school? Yeah, last time you asked me that question, I I opened our whole interview with what is now famous among my friends as the three-second sigh. (laughs) And I I have to say, I'm actually in a much better place now um, because I feel like some of the uncertainty, at least for us, has been resolved. And with the vaccines having been approved so quickly and now other, um, you know, relatively good news coming on the COVID front, um, I'm, I'm feeling a lot more hopeful about the future. So we're doing pretty well. I'm really glad to hear that. How has virtual learning gone for for your two kids? Yeah. So, well, my two kids, um, I have a first grader and a fifth grader, as I think we talked about last time. And virtual learning for my um, fifth grader was going extremely poorly. And and we made a decision in November to pull him out of public school. And he is now homeschooled, um, which, you know, a lot of people have said when I said that, oh my gosh, how is that working for you while you're working full-time? And I have to say it's actually been less work because Mm. we don't have to sit with him constantly and keep him on task. Um, Virtual school was was really deeply challenging. And it's going somewhat better for my first grader, but that's because he has his grandma available to him as as essentially a full-time learning coach. And so he really does have a lot of hands-on support to help him do it. Well, good for you all for making the decision you needed to for for your kids. Yeah, it was a difficult decision to make on several different fronts. Um, 
And one of them was certainly that I I really do feel strongly that I want to support my public school system and the state public school system. And um, but it just it just wasn't, you know, wasn't working for him at all. It wasn't yeah. working for any of us. Yeah. What do you think about MMSD's consideration of returning for in-person school for at least its youngest students right now? Yeah. Well, I think it's clear that uh, the evidence for what's happening in education, especially for the youngest students, is that uh, it's, you know, virtual learning is is next to impossible to do with any kind of quality um, in spite of the teacher's best efforts. And I think a lot of kids are struggling and I know a lot of teachers are struggling with it. And so I certainly understand the, the educational and developmental and social reasons to want to return to in-school. Um, on the, you know, of course, we're thinking about doing this while pandemic is still afoot. And so there's another set of considerations about returning to in-person instruction on the COVID front. And um, those are pretty complex, but I, I guess the short version of that is that I, I do have I do have some concerns. And I also I have some hopes and fears around what that's going to look like. Would you like to expand on that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> um, you know, one of the one of the pieces of really good news is that the vaccine, two vaccines have received emergency use authorization from FDA and they've been rolled out. Um, healthcare providers are already getting them. Some people in long-term care facilities are already getting them. Um, the data on the efficacy in these vaccines looks great. And CDC this past weekend uh, recommended that teachers be in the very next priority group for receiving vaccines. And you know, depending on how the logistics of rollout uh, of the vaccine is going, we could expect teachers to be starting to get the vaccine and the other people who are in the, the second group, group 1B, to start getting the vaccine within the next few weeks. Wow. And so I really am hopeful that we can get teachers at least vaccinated and protected from exposure to COVID in their classrooms before we get back to in-person instruction. Um, there have been some real challenges with vaccine rollout in some places. I hear it's going pretty well in Madison, and I hope that um, I hope that continues and that we can see a, a rollout to this next group, which includes people who are 75 years and older, as well as uh, what they called frontline essential workers. So, uh, and that does include teachers. I hope that goes smoothly and happens quickly. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned sort of some of the fears, I guess, about the possibility of the district returning to in-person right now. What are some of the concerns that you have? Yeah, so my concerns are that I really haven't heard anything about what the mitigation strategies are going to look like in terms of um, what will these classrooms look like? Will it be the regular density of kids? I imagine that they'll be asked to wear masks because that's been a um, pretty universal. But, you know, masks are not a magic force field, uh, perhaps especially on a kindergartner. And they're also, they have to be removed for eating lunch, and, you know, they're often removed for mask breaks in some school settings or doing something like that. So I want to see kids wearing masks as well as, if possible, having some lower density within the classrooms. 
And that would mean, you know, doing some pretty substantial rearrangements to the classes themselves. And I just, I haven't heard anything about how that might go. I have seen some internal communications that have sort of indicated it'll probably be classrooms limited to 12 to 15 students a piece. Now, the logistics of that, as you mentioned, you know, that's well below a normal class size. So the logistics of what that means and how that actually plays out and who's still virtual or who's teaching kids who opt virtual, that that has not really been made public yeah. in detail yet. So it's a it's a I I understand it's a huge logistical challenge. Um, one of my concerns with it is actually that, you know, I, I really do hope that they figure out a way to spread kids out so there are less kids in one room together. But I have also observed that it's very hard for kids and families to deal with uh, all of this change and uncertainty. I mean, kids really thrive on stability. And um, these changes are hard for them. And so, you know, if they sh- if they w- want to reduce the classroom sizes down to 12 or 15 kids, there a lot of kids, half the kids will get a different teacher most of the way through the year, which um, I think is a challenge. And, and that actually leads to my other fear about what this could look like is that, um, you know, the schools, MMSD are not operating in a vacuum. Uh, We live in Madison. And um, what we saw happen in the fall was that UW-Madison brought several thousand undergraduate students back for for in-person higher education. And uh, that led directly to a, a pretty big spike in cases first on campus and then slowly diffusing out into the community. Um, We've mostly recovered from that big spike at this point, but I'm really worried that the timing of this reopening is going to be right after the kids come back again to college and that um, we could see another huge spike related to the undergraduate students returning from all over the country where they're is really high disease load and then moving back into those really high density places where undergraduate students tend to live, you know, shared apartments and fraternity houses and dormitories. And so, you know, the whole context of college returning around the same time, just, it worries me that, that MMSD is going to make a set of difficult logistical decisions and then kids are going to have to, you know, and then we'll have to react to a big spike in cases in the community. Having seen that sort of spike when college students initially return in the fall, when K-12 was still virtual, um, mixed with sort of some of the data that has come from places that are in person for K-12, how does that change your thinking from an epidemiology perspective um, as far as what we should be thinking about and looking at? Yeah, so this is still a matter of considerable debate in the epidemiology community is this question of um, how much COVID transmission happens in classrooms, in K-12 classrooms, right? And and I will say that um, in the United States, although there are many schools that are operating as if everything was completely normal, uh, we do not have any kind of representative sample of what's of transmission in those schools to draw on that would really tell us whether um, whether and how much COVID transmission was occurring within school settings. When we look at the, I mean, you might call it kind of circumstantial evidence that we have, it does look like 
the K through 12 school setting is not, you know, the leader in super spreader events, right? We don't see a whole classroom coming down with COVID at the same time. But we do see some associations between how much COVID is happening in the community and how much COVID is happening in schools. And it's very hard to tease apart the direction of that influence and, you know, how much um, how much being in-person school really is, is leading to COVID cases going up in the community. I would say that certainly in places where there is a lot of COVID circulating in the community, that means there's a lot of COVID in the schools too. And so the students there and the teachers there are more likely to be exposed to COVID because, you know, some of those people are bringing COVID into the school with them just as a function of, that's just the math. You know, that's if there are 100 people with COVID and uh, 10 of them go to school, then you've got 10 cases of COVID in your school, right? So we do know, though, it looks like kids are not as good at spreading COVID as adults are, and maybe particularly younger kids. That's not to say they can't. And there is some very compelling evidence from uh, Europe that suggests that inf- they they do, and in fact they they have uh, more asymptomatic infection than any other group, but they don't transmit as efficiently, and so that's probably why we don't see the super spreader events in classrooms where a whole classroom gets sick all at one time. What sort of data or research are you looking for? I guess to inform your thoughts about how schools and if schools should reopen? What kind of information should people be paying attention to, do you think? Well, I think the first thing that we should be asking is, you know, what do we know about how COVID, um, how well it is transmitted in classroom settings? And then try to um, try to look around and see, well, well, how much COVID is in the community? You know, how likely is it that any kid is going to be bringing COVID into the school or adult? who works in the school. Um, and then we can start to think about questions of, okay, well, so we know how much COVID is circulating in the community. How, how well do kids transmit it? Do they bring it home for the, you know, do you get a, a COVID infection in school and then bring it home to your parents or your grandparents? What can we do to reduce those risks by doing things like wearing masks and then, um, reducing the density of kids in the classroom, you know, improving ventilation, all these kind of, I would call them lower level mitigation strategies have to come after questions about how much COVID is present in the community more broadly. What would you say of Madison's trends right now with COVID? Uh, Is it good, bad, close? (laughs) I mean, Madison's, you know, been doing pretty well. The, Mm -hmm. The rates are trending down. And um, I think that's really promising. I, I don't know that anything is really different from August, right before the university students came back. Uh, you know, rates at that time were also fairly low. And when the university uh, brought students back, they, they shot up really quickly. And, you know, that, that could absolutely happen again. In fact, I, I would expect it to. And so, you know, because they're trending down right now, that, that's good, obviously. That's very good. And especially in a context where now some people are being vaccinated, we can protect the, those of, of us who have the most exposure 
and the highest risk of poor outcomes. You know, I hope this is the beginning of the end. I hope that big spike that we saw in November was it. Um, but I'm also, um, you know, that, that kind of depends on a, a few things. And one of them is what happens when the university students come back. And one of them is how efficiently the vaccine can be rolled out to more groups, including teachers. And then, of course, what can be done to reduce transmission in schools. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. On a, a recent Dear Pandemic discussion about schools, you mentioned something like it was uh, some with schools, it's become a policy decision rather than a science decision. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yes. So, <laughs> you know, the, the question of whether things are going to reopen or not um, really is you, you can ask epidemiologists to inform on those decisions, but they are ultimately not made by scientists. They are ultimately made by policy people. And um, I may have said it, <laughs> I may have said that with a little bit of irritation in my voice because I don't feel like policymakers are really listening to science at this point on the issue. And I think even some scientists are not doing very um, rigorous science around, you know, just how how likely is school transmission and how how much is that contributing to community spread? Um, and that's that's a, because it's a matter of priorities, you know. So there there are um, there are a lot of competing priorities here, and one of them is getting kids back in school. I, I mean, it's important. I I completely agree with that point of view. One of the challenges I've noticed as a reporter in trying to sort out how things are going in places is is much of the data that is out there for the United States, especially seemingly is voluntary, um, yes. voluntarily reported. What do you think, is there a way to fix that problem? What, what would be the way to go about getting better data? Well, what we have seen in some other contexts is a representative sample, random sampling strategy that, that samples children for COVID infection. Or in some cases, uh, and we've even seen this in a couple of, of local places in the United States, where we sample a whole population for antibodies to COVID to find out what the past prevalence of COVID has been in the population. And the advantage there is that we would catch many more symptom symptomatic and asymptomatic infections. So the challenge with volunteer data, one of the challenges with volunteer data, aside from the who ends up volunteering their data sort of social challenges, is that if kids are more likely to be asymptomatic but have COVID and, and in some cases pass it on to other people, and we're only mostly testing people who have symptoms, especially when it comes to a school setting, then we're missing a ton of infections in kids. Right. And, and so your sample is it's going to look like almost by necessity, it's going to look like kids have very few infection and transmit COVID in the school setting very rarely. But it could be that we're just not testing kids at random in a way that would tell us whether they're getting infected. 
And when we have done that, when other settings have done that, there was a study in Austria and another one in Iceland that both did a random sample of kids. And essentially, this looks like kids are randomly enrolled in a study and then they get tested for coat to see if they have COVID, you know, once or more than once. We see that kids actually do have a lot of asymptomatic COVID. And uh, the outcomes of those studies, those two studies in particular, vary a little bit. The Iceland study suggested that kids spread COVID considerably less than adults do, but still do spread it. And the study in Austria suggested that that kids may actually be driving the continued uh, increase in cases in some areas. I'll have to look at that study. That's not one I've seen. I Another thing I know that's going on right now is some of the surrounding communities are starting to open back up a little bit more with uh, schools. Some already have some younger grades in person, and I know both Verona and Middleton Cross Plains recently voted to uh, phase in more students being in person. Is it good or bad from an epidemiology perspective to have multiple communities sort of approaching a phase-in like that, uh, and if Madison chooses to, obviously Madison would be added to that list, or is that going to make it harder to tell what and where potential spread is coming from? So it turns out that it's really hard to tell where potential spread is coming from in any case. Um, it's just a hard thing to track down. You know, if it were a, a, a really rare infection, then we could call up the three people who had it and ask them everyone they had been in contact with over the last two weeks and figure it out. We could figure out the exact transmission chains. But, you know, the pandemic is so widespread at this point that there's just no telling. I mean, there's no disentangling if cases from Verona are bleeding over into Madison or like, who knows? That's not going to be possible. So we don't have any shot at getting that kind of information. I think that, um, Given that that ship has sailed, <laughs> it's probably good that it's a phased reopening because we're, we can kind of test out what's working, you know, test the waters a little bit, back off if it's not working right, um, experiment with different strategies without just having everybody dive into the water at the same time. The other thing I'll say is that one of the real concerns about schools reopening is it actually, it, it leads all of us to start thinking about the pandemic in a different kind of a way. It leads to other things reopening. You know, if schools are open, well, what about after school sports and um, music lessons and swim lessons? And well, maybe I can go to the gym after I drop my kids off at school. And, you know, it it's kind of a, a mental signal, some scientists, behavioral scientists think, that everything's fine and that we can stop restricting our interactions on other fronts as well. And that might actually be what leads to that concurrent, you know, cases in the community, cases in the schools being pretty much parallel. So one of the recommendations that that I have and other scientists have is that if schools do reopen, Families who are sending their kids to school in person really need to think of that as as their whole interaction budget, and they need to not be doing anything else, right? Because even if it's not happening in the schools, if you're sending your kids to school and that means you're also doing a bunch of other stuff, 
the bunch of other stuff could lead to a big uh, a big spike in COVID cases. Thank you for mentioning that. That sort of goes along with some of the messaging I've heard, I feel like, on schools from people pushing to reopen saying, prioritize them, but really prioritize them. That doesn't mean just like open them to open them. You need to, as Dr. Fauci said, I think if it's a choice between the bars and the schools, close the bars, open the schools. But that close the bars statement is a pretty key part of it. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> and we saw that really clearly in the fall. I mean, we, you know, um, you you can't have everything open and expect to have uh, cases remain flat, right? We And in fact, you can't even have some of the stuff open and expect cases to remain flat. If we want schools to be open, I think we need to seriously consider shutting down other things that are currently open. Anything specific that concerns you in Madison uh, uh, as far as that goes? Well, um, what we have learned, so the, the, the guidance changes, it's, you know, the, the authorities in Madison in Dane County have been pretty responsive to what's happening in terms of local case counts. And so the guidance changes a lot. And so I'll just, I'll say more generally that when we look at the whole body of evidence of where people um, tend to get sick, it's, um, it's very often in workplaces. Uh, indoor dining is a huge problem. Bars are clearly a huge problem. Gyms, not a good idea. Um, you know, any place where there's a lot of people together mixing in settings where they don't normally uh, spend big chunks of their day, and especially if they're there for a while and eating, singing, dancing, breathing hard, shouting, those are the highest risk businesses. We also know, looking at the evidence so far, that um, we have a real tendency to uh, let down our guard around people we know. And so people are getting sick at small gatherings, often with people they know. Um, and so I would say there's also some some personal responsibility to restrict some of those small, you know, game night or having a few friends over for beers or whatever it is. Yeah. So not just businesses, but also private gatherings. Absolutely. So to get back to uh, Madison schools specifically, they have said that even if they do open for in-person instruction for some students, they'll still offer a virtual option uh, for families that choose to go that route. With that in mind, would you send your children to in-person school right now? I would not send my children to in-person school right now. And I'm, I can give you a couple reasons for that. And I, I want to start off by saying that this question is going to be about striking a balance for each family. And so it is a personal trade-off. You know, people have to trade off what the pros and cons and their needs are for them. And for me and my family on balance, you know, I said at the top that that we're, we're doing okay. We've kind of found a rhythm. It's definitely not ideal. It's going to be the weirdest year of my kids' education ever. But you know, it's going, we've got something that's mostly working for us right now. And so I don't think I want to disrupt that. And, and the reasons that, um, the reasons I don't want to, or first of all, there's sort of the, the society level reason, right? I'm a population scientist. I think a lot about how my actions interact with the actions of, of the other people in my community. And I have some real concerns about equity, um, and school reopening. So the, the thing about COVID in schools is that even if, 
COVID isn't the COVID in classrooms isn't the top of the list for um, super spreader events. You know, like I said, we're not getting we're not seeing like a whole classroom of people all get sick at once. We do see some kids who get COVID in school settings and then take it home. And uh, when that happens, you don't need it to be every kid in a classroom for it to turn into a problem at the community level. And it's particularly a problem for, for certain kids who live with older people or parents who have high-risk conditions or parents who are essential workers or parents who don't get sick leave. Um, and so, you know, I think there are some real equity concerns. And I don't personally, since we're okay at home right now, we're in this position of, of relative privilege and we've kind of got a system that's working um, we can stay home. I don't feel good about contributing to that potential problem at the community level. Um, and then especially with a vaccine just within reach, you know, I feel like, oh man, if we could just give this even a few more weeks, it we would probably be in a better place and we might not ever realize those problems. So if you were to ask me this question again, and you know, in, I don't know, if this were four months after vaccine rollout instead of two weeks after, I might have a different point of view. The other reasons are more personal. I mean, I've seen amongst my friends and my colleagues, other districts that have reopened and they have often had to close again after cases have gone up in the community, either for some other reason or, or maybe schools have contributed to this mentality of everybody, you know, reopening the rest of their lives and, and getting back to normal. Um, and I find that really disruptive, um, after a year of, of all this uncertainty and mix up with my kids and their education, I just, I don't want to, I need to be able to rely on what the plan is. And right now we have a plan that I know is stable and we're just going to stick with it for the rest of the year. Um, and then the last reason is that I personally, I just don't want to get COVID, um, People like me, you know, I'm not an essential employee. I can work from home and I have been working from home for, for almost 10 months now. I can probably expect to wait until April, May, maybe June before I get a vaccine. And uh, it's been, you know, I've invested 10 months in keeping myself safe and not being one of the cases of COVID in my community. And I'm just not willing to like abandon that and, and, and put my family at risk. The other thing is that um, kids are not going to get a vaccine for even even longer. Kids' trials are only just getting started, and so kids' vaccine is quite a ways off. Um, and we, as I said, we're the only other people in our bubble are my in-laws, and um, they're older, they're high risk. They will get a vaccine as soon as it becomes available to them. But I don't want to. We'd have to stop seeing them. Um, we'd have to cut them out of our bubble if we were to start sending our kids back to school. And I think um, we've been, we've really relied on them for a lot of support in childcare over these last many months. And uh, it's just not something that I would I would be willing to give up in order to send my kids back to in-person school for the next few months here. So, I mean, all of that said, you know, this all that all works for us because of the position that we're in. We're able to make it work at home. I would not judge another family for coming down on the other side of this decision. Um, there are people who aren't okay at home right now. There are people who don't know what to, you know, have their kids have no childcare. They have no income because they can't send their kids to school. Um, there are going to be families who 
have to who do want to send their kids back to school no matter what. And I, I would not pass judgment on them for coming down on the other side. With that in mind, and despite earlier the discussion about a policy decision versus a science decision, I mean, from a science perspective, from your perspective, is it a good idea for Madison to open its schools right now for in-person instruction? Well, it's <laughs> so one of the reasons that I've like kind of balked on answering this question is because I'm an infectious disease expert, you know, uh, uh, no, from an infectious disease perspective, that's not a good idea. You know, it's kind of obvious, but, but there's not another person on this podcast who can t- speak to the other point of view, which is if we had an early education expert, um, she would be saying a very different thing. Right. And so I'll kind of just allude to that point of view, even though my point of view is almost entirely infectious disease, there is another legitimate point of view here and there are competing interests. You know, they compete with one another. You can't have, I don't think you can have both. So it's really sticky. Um, It would be helpful if we had some very clear evidence about like, how, how do you exactly reduce the infect, the risk of transmission in school settings? But we don't. The whole thing is really a frustrating mess. <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, yeah, it's, it still stuns me, I think, when I realize we're only really, you know, I mean, a year into having any data to even collect on anything related to COVID. Um, so, of course, there's still a lot of mystery out there. There is still a lot of mystery out there. I'm just, I'm really hoping that, I almost feel like we're in a, a tortoise versus hare race right now that the, the vaccine is, is it's right there. It's, you know, within our reach. And if we can get those people who are going to be the most exposed in the school settings vaccinated, many of my fears would be relieved at that point, you know, to see teachers protected and to see the older people that, that school age children live with protected. That, that would be just like a slam dunk on the science. I would go around high-fiving every scientist in town. After you'd all been vaccinated, right? Virtu- virtually high-fiving. <laughs> virtually high-fiving, okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, is there anything else related to, to Madison's considerations right now uh, related to schools that you'd like to mention that we haven't gotten to yet? Everybody's asking me about the timeline for phase 1B. We didn't really talk about that. Did we talk about that? You mentioned it briefly that it's a few weeks out potentially, but if yeah. you have more to add. Well, so the CDC is saying that the the timeline for getting phase 1B started is within a few weeks. But there has been some, you know, there have been some failures and some um delivery snafus and other issues with even the first phase rolling out around the country. And and so I don't have a ton of confidence as to exactly when phase 1B is going to start. The other thing about it is that those CDC recommendations are just recommendations. They're not requirements. And so every state actually gets to make its own decisions about who goes first. Um, I hope, very much hope, that teachers remain on that list in accordance with the recommendations. And I'm also, I do think that having the 75 and up age group in the very next priority group is a very good idea because those are the people who are at most risk of hospitalization and death. And so I hope the state goes with the CDC recommendations and that it all goes really smoothly. And, And then, you know, we could be looking at in Madison having 
most teachers and substantial number of older people vaccinated around when schools are going back. That would be great. <laughs> Let's aim for that. Okay. Make it happen, Scott. I, I will do my best. I'll be out there. That sounds like a really good plan. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be a really good plan. This would alleviate many of my fears. <laughs> I, I love having hope on the horizon. That's yeah. a very, very nice place to be. It um, is. And I think a good place to end our interview today. I just thank you so much for being here again with us. I, you, you shed light on a lot of uh, important points and we just really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, this school one, I always feel like this is where the waters are the most muddy. And so I don't know how much light I re- there really is to shed on it, but maybe at least I have enlightened everyone as to how tricky and impossible this whole thing really is. And that <laughs> in and of itself is, is a service. I think it, yeah. it, our world today, oftentimes things are oversimplified. So shedding light on how complex they can be is a good yeah. thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Malia. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks for having me. Big thanks to Scott for hosting and to Malia, as always, for talking us through this pandemic. You can find more of Malia's analysis on Dear Pandemic, the news platform she helps run. Just search for Dear Pandemic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And big thanks to you, as always, for listening to The Mad Splainers. Got a question about a local issue? That's what we live for. Email me at nyahr at madison.com, and your question could become part of a future story or podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to The Mad Splainers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you do your listening. You can also check out our other podcasts, including The Corner Table, all about food and drink in Madison, and Wedge Issues, all about state politics. We'll be back from time to time, but for now, though, thanks for listening, and have a very happy and safe emphasis on the safe holiday. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.